Hello, and thank you for listening to the Hollywood Fishbowl. This recording comes in two parts. Part one is hosted by podcast luminary Jesse Kester. Part two is hosted by star of the stage and screen, Chris Grace. We hope that you will enjoy both recordings. Thank you for listening to part one. Drops. Morpheus is fighting Neo! Hello, and welcome to the Hollywood Fishbowl. I am and can only be your host, Jesse Kester, and today I am joined by the one, the only, the illustrious... Chris Grace. Chris Grace, hello, and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jesse. How have you been? I've been great. It's been good. so long since we've seen each other. It's been it's been um, either infinity for you yeah. or since two weeks ago for me when I went to see uh, oh. the the magic to do. Right. And we're gonna get into all Morpheus. We could also have intersecting uh, intersecting timelines. We could. You we, know, are we? A la a recent Netflix show that I watched, but I won't say the name of because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. That's a weird way to front load I know. no information. I know. Well, the thing is that there's a show on Netflix that everybody's watching. They're like, you you know, I was encouraged to watch it with no information about what it's about. And it, it deals with intersecting divergent yes, timelines. So now I don't want to say what it is. Is so. it comedians in cars getting coffee? <laughs> yeah. It's I the, knew it. <laughs> we, it's the West Wing. Oh, okay. Uh, we are going to get into all of that as I load up five and five. We're going to get into a lot today. Okay. If it's all the same to you. Sure. Uh, we're going to get into divergent timelines. Uh, we're going to get into Superstore. We're going to get into Magic To Do. We're going to get in Magic Without To Do. And then after that, I'm going to be spent, burnt out, and the show becomes yours until we both give it to the fishbowl. Yeah, you're planning your burnout. Yes. Oh, 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 I know when it hits. <laughs> um, but before we do any of that, we are going to do five and five, wherein I will ask you five questions. You will have one minute to answer each question, and then a beeping timer will cut you off. This is not your enemy. This is your friend, because these go to Instagram where you only have one minute and you're going to get cut off with or without the beeps. So I'm trying to help you out. I'm, I'm ready for this. All right. Uh, then let's get into it. <sighs> I'm just doing some deep breathing first. We can, we can take a minute. We can do no, I got it. six and six. We can do a minute. Of, <laughs> no, of yeah, just a minute of, you want to put an Instagram post of just me breathing for a minute? That'd be very <laughs> um, avant-garde. Can we get that? <laughs> can we get that at the end just sure. for, for a teaser of yeah. what the episode will be? <laughs> All right, here comes five and five, and we'll do one and one at the very, very end. The beeps do sound like this. Question number one, where did you grow up, and how did that inform your adulthood? I grew up in Houston, Texas. I was born in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, Then we lived in Raleigh, but for the bulk of my life, I lived in Houston, Texas. Uh, And uh, I am a Texan. I definitely feel like I'm a Texan, but uh, growing up there is interesting if you are... uh, a minority, as we used to call ourselves, uh, because, you know, I feel very much Texan and I feel mm-hmm. um, an affinity with the city and the state that I grew up in. However, you're also constantly reminded that you're not sort of part of it. Um, How strong is that branding? Whites are not the majority, but we have certainly labeled yeah. everyone else the minority. That's yeah. really uh, intense branding that we work on. Uh, I mean, white people are good at branding, I will say. That's- that's yeah. sort of your thing. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. Um, are, you, are you talking Raleigh, North Carolina? Uh, I did live in Raleigh. Uh, for how long? Uh, for uh, like three. I'd love to talk more about this, <laughs> but we can't. Question number two. 
What is the must-engage media, the book, the movie, the television show that opened your brain up to the secrets of the universe? Oh, uh, I would recommend a book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Um, I find that to be a very inspiring book in terms of, uh, and that he's got another one called like Turning Pro or something, but he sort of revolves around the same ideas, which is as artists, we're just, our only enemy is resistance. Um, the, the thing that sort of keeps you from sitting down and writing that day or, you know, me going to a stand up show or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, that internal resistance is your, your main enemy and his strategies about how to deal with it and how being a pro means you know how to engage with that and do your work anyway. Okay. Yeah. The difference between a pro and amateur is an amateur is someone who kind of waits around for inspiration and a pro is somebody who sits down every day and does the work. Are you writing stand up regularly or I do stand up regularly. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do I write it? I mean, think it and put time into synth. (laughs) Man, I would love to talk more about this, but we got to move on to question number three. (laughs) Question number three. What is the greatest source of joy in your life? Uh, I would say two things. Uh, My husband, Eric, who I see every day, except right now he's in Australia, um, or creating things. Creating tangible things or intellectual things? Uh, both, yeah, actually. Both. What do you work on that's tangible? Well, I got a 3D you... printer, which rocks. Ah, okay. What was your... And I just said the word rocks. I was trying to, I was trying to time it perfectly with the 60-second beep. Uh, <laughs> I thought that would be a nice, uh, you know, end to that one. And it's going to beep on the is 3. Is this an app for Tabata intervals? <laughs> this is, it is, it was for exercise. Oh. Exercise rocks! Nailed it. <laughs> Here we go on to question four. What gets under your skin? Um, a lack of empathy gets under my skin. Um, I try, I'm, I'm privileged in a lot of ways. So I try to have empathy and compassion for people on the other side of axes that I'm not. For example, I have a lot of male privilege. Uh, I'm relatively anyone in America is relatively wealthy compared mm-hmm. to other countries. So I try to have a little bit em- empathy for people on the other side of those lines. Um, and I find it frustrating when, when people on the other side of dynamics that I'm not a part of don't have empathy for either me or other people. Do you still feel obliged to seek out empathy for those who are seeming to seeming to be actively avoiding being empathetic to other people? Well, that's a new challenge is Isn't to it? be compassionate for people that are assholes. Yeah. Um, but that is worth pursuing. I think I have follow-up questions. <laughs> Thank God there's the rest of the show. <laughs> Question number five, advice. What, ad, what is the best advice that you've received in your lifetime? And what advice that comes from your brain would you like to put out into the world? Uh, I really do appreciate the thing Tina Fey wrote in Bossy Pants about not wasting time um, with people that are critical of you if they're not in your way. Uh, there's people will look up a more concise statement of that, but basically Mm -hmm. like if they're not somebody keeping you from getting a job or getting somewhere you want, then you don't need to spend time or energy fighting those people. Cool. Um, and then I just read today of RuPaul saying to just stay away from dumb people, (laughs) which I think is pretty good too. (laughs) Don't try to like educate them or, or, or tellingly don't try to show that you're superior to them. Uh, just walk away. Yeah, yeah. You don't have to engage every no everything in not, the world. You know, you're not responsible for every teaching moment in the world. 
You made it through five and five with flying colors. Thank you. Do you want to, let's do one and one right now. Yeah. For just breathing. Yeah. 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 And I'll let you breathe. I'm going to ease off the mic and this is going to be all you for one minute. Okay. okay? And the timing begins same as before. We did it. That was incredible. <laughs> We're breaking new ground on the fishbowl. We I did have a thought during that uh, as to why is transcendental meditation so expensive? <laughs> uh, it's something I want. I'm going to explore. Lots of people say to do it. Jerry mm-hmm. Seinfeld, David Lynch recommend transcendental. You know, TM. Have you yeah, heard of, yeah, you yeah, heard yeah. I'm aware of TM. Uh, I just can't imagine where the money's going. I don't know, but it's like fifteen hundred dollars to do. Isn't it the most austere state that you can be in? Like that's the goal. So why would, I don't know. I think part of their organizational strategy has been to make it a little more expensive, perhaps Mm -hmm. to, um, uh, sort of create more value in it for people like sort of probably raises your investment level. Yeah. 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 And for um, for pound, but also if you think it does a lot of good for a lot of people, maybe, maybe it should cheaper, cheaper, be cheaper. But, uh, I don't know enough about, to know where that money would be going. Well, like I'm curious to just like spend the money yeah, you, and be like, what am I, what is the, what is it for? You know, are we going to see a new Instagram feed? Yeah. Maybe of you just of sitting just silently. You probably signed something that says you can't reveal what, uh, okay. I don't know. Let's get into it. Let's <laughs> chop it up. Uh, I want to uh, let's go back to Houston. Okay. And then figure out the path that led you to Raleigh. Cause I spent five years in North Carolina and kind of sort of loved oh. it there. I wasn't in Raleigh. I was over in Winston-Salem. I went to school in Winston-Salem. Which school? University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Which, uh, d- which, which department, which area? Uh, drama. Okay. I was over in the film school. Oh, you were. Uh, so I must've predated you because I was there when the school of film started. Okay. The okay. very first year that it started. Okay. Yeah. I'm a little bit after you then. Yeah. Um, David Gordon Green, I think had just graduated the right. year or two before. He's I one of the early it. classes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He was, a, he was an early adopter of that yeah. technology. Have you seen George Washington? I have. Don't make me do this on the air. No, I have not Admit that you haven't seen <laughs> yes. a movie by a the most university classmate movie. of yours that's filmed in the city that you yeah, went to school yeah, in. Yeah. Our, our star alum. Yeah who I'm, I'm praying does not listen to this show. (laughs) Uh, George Washington is a great, great movie. And I remember watching it when I was living in New York after school. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I don't know where this was shot, but this is a decrepit, poor city. And then I was like, Ooh, ooh, this is where I went to school. Because Winston-Salem is very, um, uh, the economics are very split. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bank town and it's back of town, which means that they're the, the haves and the have nots. Yeah. In, but if you go from school of the arts 
like four blocks east, mm-hmm. you're in some like sketchy areas. And then if you just drive up, I guess like 52 or something, yeah. you end up in, you know, where it starts smelling like tobacco. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, like, and all the Renolda stuff. All the, yeah. You got the million dollar properties. You got yeah. old Salem, which is it was so much money in there. Yeah. Um, just for anyone who's never been to Winston Salem, North Carolina, a lot of stuff in that town is sort of, it seems like it's named after cigarettes. Yeah. Cause it is, <laughs> it is, it, it, it all is Winston a, Salem. Yeah. There's or, a cigarette called Winston and there's a cigarette yep, called Salem. Yep. 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 And isn't that uh Wells Fargo? Do they not have their headquarters there? Or is that, some, Oh, I don't know. Maybe. Or, uh, or Krispy Kreme is the one that I was thinking Krispy of. Krispy Kreme, Waco- so close. Wachovia. Wachovia, maybe. Maybe. Anyway, boy, this is, t- let's talk yeah, about well, which I, banks I studied, have their headquarters. I studied drama at School of the Arts. How, how did that go? What was your experience there? Because I definitely had my experience as a film student there. Um, but I'm wondering what, I, what it felt like. I liked, I liked it now. Like now I think that it was a very good experience because I still find a lot of stuff that I learned and worked on Mm-hmm. in school, I still apply. And I think when you come out into, especially, you know, I went to New York first after college, but now that I'm in LA, uh, you do encounter a lot more people that have less craft. Um, they just haven't been exposed to it. So they're not as just aware of, there are just technical elements to acting in comedy and performing. That, yeah. Yeah. It's um, not just getting up there and pretending something. It can be, you know, it can be if we can set up a, you know, a three camera shoot, you know, not unlike this one, mm-hmm. uh, in a way. And if we can capture the magic of what you're doing in a way that we can edit it all back together into something great, then, then we can, that's great. However, yeah. there's a lot of situations in performance and comedy where we need you to do that again, mm-hmm. four times in a row or, you know, six or eight nights a week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and that's where there is some craft actually similar to what I was talking about with war of art. You have to be able to do it when you don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, I think, what separates maybe crafts, like people with really good craft, you know? Because uh, a lot of, coming up through improv, a lot of comedy is very much like, hey, we're just having fun. Like, if we have fun, the audience will have fun. Sometimes you don't have, you're not having that much fun. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things I, I do wonder about improv, since it is, it it demands that you are present in every moment yeah. that you're a part of. How how easy or difficult is it to slip into not ennui, but that when, when you're doing a rehearsed performance against a script, there are nights that you can lean on the material and you know, right. that the, the emotions will hit with the audience in a good enough way that they'll feel like they got their money's worth. Yeah. But you can't phone it in really on improv. You've got to be, Oh, you can phone it in. I Tell me all in. about that. Tell me how that works. Uh, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be sort of, I think over the hump, of improv where I feel confident enough to do it pretty much wherever, whenever with whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, and my regular shows that I'm in are with people that I love playing with. Mm -hmm. So that's a great, great luxury in improv. Um, because then I don't really feel that ennui anymore. However, I did feel it very much in my first through five years. Um, especially when you're taking improv very seriously now as I'm older, Mm -hmm. um, my opinion is that improv doesn't matter at all. And it doesn't matter if you do bad shows. 
um, no one cares. <laughs> and I think that is a helpful attitude to have towards improv. Some people find that diminishing and I apologize to those people, mm-hmm. but I think it actually helps you if you don't take all of this so seriously. Now it becomes harder to do that when you don't have like a regular fun show that you're doing. You're in some uh, indie group that you're working with and it's not going as well as you want, or you're not getting all the shows that you want to have. Yeah. So I, I realize that I'm speaking from a position position of like, having a lot of like luxury when it comes to this. How do you define a bad show when it's improv? Like, uh, a bad show, really a bad show in improv is when you don't feel that you worked well with your teammates. That's to me, all that matters. If you had a show where you and your teammates played well together, communicated well, you understood what each other's intent was. You were on the same page. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't really care what the audience feels at that point. You know, I, I guarantee the audience will have enjoyed that show. If the team team was like, wow, we were really on the same page. It was clear. Inevitably yeah. a bad improv show will have a bad audience response, but also you'll get off stage and everybody will be like, what, what was that move about? Like I didn't, Oh, okay. That, I didn't get that at all. Or, you know, I was trying to do this and you cut me off and you know, yeah, bad yeah. juju basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. I've been in shows where you see somebody set something up and the person just doesn't catch yeah, catch the toss. Yeah, and, for and sure. It derails a lot of momentum when that happens. You feel it in the whole... It's, um, you, the audience definitely feels that, even if they can't articulate it. But basically, yeah. it's a lot of times it's just... A way, you know, the first six moves in an improv show are very precious. Um, so if you waste them, if somebody, you know, sets the scene in a library... Mm-hmm. And then somehow that gets missed and undone. Well, we just kind of wasted one of the first lines in our scene. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think the audience cannot articulate that, but they feel like, ah, you know, at the top of a scene, I'm investing all like I'm interested in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. infinite possibility. Now, if you, uh, Rich Tallarico, a great improv teacher of mine, uh, described if this is an in- infinite spectrum of what the scene can be. Once mm-hmm. I say it's in a library, it goes down to this. Yeah. And then everything we add makes it more and more specific. Right. But if we go down to a library and then you're like, Oh, we're actually at Barnes and Noble. There's still books, but we're not in a library anymore. Yeah. We're sort of like, forget this. Now we're here. And then the audience and the performers both, both have to do this kind of reverse engineering. How far back do we have to go? How much doesn't make sense anymore? Or you ignore it. And the audience is like, wait, I thought, you know, yeah. Yeah. Either way, it erodes a bit of suspension of disbelief from the audience. Yes. So that just hurts. And you can recover from it, but um, but that's an example of like a team miscommunication that doesn't feel that fun. If you have too many of those in a show, you the show ends and you come off and you're like, eh, that didn't feel that good. I've seen some shows where <clears throat> you were mentioning that the first six lines, they're very precious. I've seen shows where they uh, are in no rush to land on the, on anything like where it'll be three minutes before they really start cooking and really start defining what's going on. Yeah. I don't think you have that. Can, before we get in too much into magic to do, can we, would you give us the elevator pitch so the audience who hasn't been to the show knows what we're talking about? Magic to do is a show I do every Thursday at seven at UCB sunset in Los Angeles. And, uh, it's, uh, we get a single suggestion and we do an improvised musical. Yeah. So we have, uh, the seven of us and then we have Aaron Wilson, our regular piano player, uh, and we just sort of make up everything. And on the, the spot. scenes, the ones I've seen, the scenes weren't particularly connected. If there was something that landed yeah. across a couple of scenes, you Magic guys wouldn't do, fight it, but right. it, it wasn't a, na- a continuous narrative. It is not a hour. narrative musical, uh, typically. I'm also in another show, Baby Wants Candy, on Fridays mm-hmm. at seven. That is almost always a narrative. 
uh, which is a totally different kettle of fish. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, magic to do is sort of montage as we would say in the yes. improv world. But so, so for a baby wants candy, when you're doing an hour narrative, like you might have a slower start as you're defining everything than magic to do, which you mean in the scenes or in the show at the, at the top of the show, like magic to do, what I've seen is um, you guys hit the ground running. It's a word then we're in the scene and within three minutes we're in a song already. Yeah. Based maybe on maybe once scene. candy starts fast too. Okay. We get, okay. we get a title and then we go into an opening number. And so. that's, that one is singing too. Baby wants yeah. candy is also musical. Yeah. How did you guys stumble on this format? Like how did this come to be birthed? Um, I'm a, I joined baby wants candy, you know, many years into its existence that it started in Chicago, mm-hmm. I believe in the nineties. Um, and then they started a version of the show in New York city and I joined that cast in like 2006, I want to say. Um, and then uh, when I came out here, I like got added to the Baby Ones Candy LA cast as well. Um, I was also doing shows with other musical improvisers in, in New York at the time, occasionally with a show in New York called Diamond Lion. Okay. Um, and then a number of those people moved out to LA. They, I believe they were doing a show here called Diamond Lion as well. Uh, and then they basically like, rebooted the show as magic to do like literally the week I moved to LA. And were you auditioning for that? No, I just knew at the ground level. I knew everybody in the show. So they just added me on. That was again, a very luxurious way to enter the UCB world in LA. No doubt. Just get added to two regular weekly shows here. Um, I mean, but also like that's after doing improv for like, seriously long form improv for like 12 years. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, no, no. You don't yeah. just knock on the door at UCV and yeah. end up in two musical shows yeah, yeah. on, on day one uh, for magic to do uh, week one. Were you guys in the same format you're in today or did it evolve over time? Um, oh, it did evolve. Actually, when we first started doing magic to do, we had uh, the previous diamond lion format, which is we, we had a guest every week that was not a musical improviser. So it was like a way to bring in our friends or mm-hmm. if we happen to know anybody that's like a celebrity, we could ask them to guest with us. And basically we would sort of try, try to take care of that person yeah, um, yeah. as the, we were doing improv. Um, and I think it just got a little hard to book somebody every week. And mm-hmm. um, it sort of, there's nothing against any of the guests, but it kind of handicaps how great your show can be if you're automatically adding somebody that isn't great at the format, it can be fun for the audience, but I think it kind of caps the ceiling on how good a show can be. It is a wrench in the gears, like an intentional one, but still there's going to be a little gear grinding. Yeah. And that format I think doesn't totally support a lot of like fun. It's not super fun to watch people deal with that. Yeah. It's not like there's short form games. I think where it might be fun to like intentionally kind of like throw wrenches in the works and see the yeah. improvisers. Yeah. Oh, of course, of course. Of but course. in a long form show, it's kind of like, it's never that fun seeing a long form team try to recover from something <laughs> in a, in a perpetual state of recovery for the entire yeah. hour that they're on stage. I can see how that, that might not yeah. set the world ablaze. What got you from Houston to Raleigh? Uh, well, so I was in, is that a family move? Raleigh's actually college? before Houston. So okay. I was born in Mississippi. Okay. My father was a nuclear engineer. Uh, and then he worked for CPNL. Mm-hmm. in Carolina. Uh, and then he, this is the like, like energy business 
uh, initialisms. CPNL is Carolina Power and Lighting. Then okay. he got a job at HLNP, Houston Lighting and Power. Ooh. Uh, so that's what brought us to Houston. So okay. I was in Houston until I graduated high school. Then I went to college in Winston-Salem. Okay. Yeah. Back then it was called NCSA. Oh, yes, it was. Now it's called UNCSA. I don't even, I don't buy the U. I didn't graduate from UNCSA. I mean, neither did I. That's that's the hill I'm going to die on. Yeah, but now you can sort of like realistically root for the Tar Heels. I can't. Well, because we're part of the same (laughs) university system. If that was, if their bid for getting more fans to the Tar Heels was to change the name of NCSA, they might have been betting on the wrong horse. Yeah, yeah. They have plenty of fans already, I guess. But I always rooted for the Tar Heels. And I, one thing about going to School of the Arts is you don't really have a, uh, you know, sweatshirt to wear. Nope. Nope. Hey, you say that about the fighting pickles again and you're off the show, buddy. Well, that's what you kind of, I think that is something I I don't miss because I feel like a lot of that is associated with kind of like the sort of gross parts of college. Mm -hmm. But I do kind of envy when people like have their like Michigan shirts and I think all that stuff is fun. Why not? My niece is going to Oregon. Mm -hmm. So I think I might buy some Oregon stuff just to start rooting for them. Do it. Do it. So after you graduate, you go to New York. How long were you there? I was there for 19 years. What was working? Nothing. (laughs) No. (laughs) What was working? I don't know. Um, I think that New York is, uh, I don't have the highest opinion right now of artists living in New York. Uh, I don't, not of the artists themselves, but of the, the situation. It's, not a con- it's not a culture conducive to uh, creative communes when rent is five thousand dollars a month for a one room. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if I agree with that. Okay, I, I think that it actually is okay for communes uh, and communities uh, because of the physical proximity of everybody. Yes, and just like. Um, the amount of running into each other that happens naturally, which actually doesn't happen a ton here in Los Angeles. There's a lot of, you have to be very intentional here about your just being with another human being. Yes. Yes. Um, but I am more concerned in New York city about something that I felt when I moved away, which was, I did feel a, um, a little bit bereft of like, part of my identity. And I realized that part of my identity was kind of bound up in being a New Yorker, um, in sort of surviving New York city on a regular day-to-day basis feels very kind of romantic and a little bit like, um, like it feels kind of good to even like stroke, like walk through the snow to the path train. I was living in Jersey city, Mm -hmm. you know, make it to your day job, go do a rehearsal, go do something else and then like struggle back, walk through the snow and get back to your place like 11 at night. Mm -hmm. It feels very um, like you are doing something with your career. Yeah. 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 Uh, But a lot of those impediments are just part of living in New York and actually don't have anything to do with your career. Yeah. So when you leave them behind, it's a little bit like, man, I was spending a lot of energy just like dealing with the subway or like having to work a day job because my rent was, kind of exorbitant for the amount of space I was getting. So there's a lot of survival things that I think lend themselves to feel like you are getting something done. And sometimes you're not, I I feel kind of bad saying that, but it's just something I felt when I moved out of New York, I felt a little bit like, Oh, where's that like sense of drive that I had. Um, But the drive that I had in New York wasn't going towards being an artist. A, a, A lot of it was just like, 
living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now in LA, a lot of that is gone. Um, and I think LA actually um, potentially exposes you to a little bit more like existential dread um, because there's a <laughs> lot more just like, there's physical isolation mm-hmm. and there's definitely like emotional isolation I like or even social isolation. Um, and I think that if you don't have a lot going on here, it's much more apparent to you. Yeah. Like the city kind of just reveals like, Hey, you just played video games for a whole week. And like, it is an expensive city, but not as expensive as New York. You yes. can get away with like, I know more people here that just like work at Starbucks and pay their rent. Yeah. Whereas in New York, I knew people that were like paralegals yeah. <laughs> that had to pay their rent, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, so, here I think people have a different challenge, which is like the city kind of like turns a mirror on you and it's just like, you're, you don't have a lot going on right now. <laughs> you feel it. You definitely feel it when your schedule isn't full and when people aren't asking if you want to hang out on the way you feel it. It, it yeah. is very sensitive here, I think. And I think that, um, Jenna Fisher wrote in this thing about like why people actor actors should move to LA, which is that in LA, there isn't a ceiling as to like how, like what you could theoretically tomorrow go to an audition and book a role in a Steven Spielberg movie. Yes. Uh, you could theoretically, although it's very unlikely you could come off the street, go to an audition and book a series regular on a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot more work here. So the other thing is that you're exposed to a lot more people that are getting work around you. <laughs> so you have a lot more friends here that like got to LA after you, you know, and mm-hmm. then they're, they're not being dicks, but they're like telling you about like, Oh yeah, I got booked on this or whatever. And everyone's just happy with what they're doing, but you get a lot more like, Oh man, you there's like, people are sort of ahead of me or behind me or whatever. You, uh, yeah. Uh, here more than anywhere else I've lived or worked. I feel that like, uh, you're in line that there are people in front of you, people behind you, and right. you're trying to get to the front of the line. Didn't feel that nearly so much. I lived in Tokyo for 10 years and it did not feel like a get in line type situation. Yeah. I mean, the um, Tokyo is not necessarily like a sort of single uh, industry town. Is no, it? no, 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 no. I no. mean, LA has something, but LA is basically entertainment is the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think it's part of it being a company town too. I bet in DC, if you're a political aspirant, I bet um, you feel that too. I bet you feel competition about who got what job yeah, or who's yeah. writing speeches for who or something like that. Do you that. still feel that, that God damn it, that one was for me? Uh, well, I so don't much. feel that, I don't believe in there being a line here in terms of like, you just bide time and then you get to have whatever you have. I don't, um, I don't mean it exactly like that, but I yeah. do mean, you're, I, I feel very sensitive to the people that are running faster than me. And yeah, I think very it's, relieved when people are running slower than I am. So my opinion is that I think artists should let go of the hierarchy of when they got to town or who's, who's older, or who's younger, or who's been at UCB longer, or mm-hmm. I just don't think it's helpful. I don't think it means much from the other side of things. You know, like if you're, if they're, I've been on the other side of like casting for house teams at a improv theater. Oh yeah. 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 And when you're casting, you just want the good talent, not yeah. the, not the political. I mean, occasionally you'll say like, this person has been around the theater a lot. They put in their dues, but if they don't bring it on the day of the audition, it's re- you have to really, it's, it's hard to be in that case of like trying to, you know, bring up why a person should be cast over someone else who's just better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't think that is super helpful. Do I feel that now? I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm very aware of people that I did stand up with in New York city that are all, 
like have done TV spots. And mm-hmm. that's because when I came to LA four years ago, I like didn't do stand up for a while. So I've only gotten back into it in the last six months. Um, but I feel I'm aware of like, Hey, I used to do open mics with that guy. And yeah. like now he's on Conan or whatever. Yeah. Um, but How I long don't, have you been in LA now for since, uh, September of 2014. Okay. okay. So yeah, it's so like four, four ish years. Okay. Um, but I don't feel that I don't, I definitely don't feel that with improv. Like I said, I don't think <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, improv doesn't, it's just not worth getting all sad about. That's all. <laughs> yes. Because if you think about improv, no one's getting paid anything to do improv. Yeah. Any, anywhere for any reason. Yes, like yes, the only yes. people getting paid to do improv are people doing like comedy, like people doing short form, mm-hmm. people doing corporate improv gigs. Uh, I've heard people in Boston get paid to do improv, which is great. Or if you do boom Chicago and Amsterdam, or if you happen to do a show like baby once candy goes to like Edinburgh fringe and yeah. you might get paid for, to do that. Yeah. But 99.999% of people doing improv, even at the highest levels are not getting paid. Now that should be changed. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion. But for right now, like if you don't get cast on a team or this or that, you know, just this like, it's not the same. <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, I understand. You're not going to be putting a down payment on a house with that yeah. improv team yeah, or anything like that. This so is that's why I, risk. I don't feel like if I like, like I auditioned for uh, teams when I got cer- certain, like at certain theaters here in LA, when I got mm-hmm. here and I didn't get in and prob- that probably had to do with like, they didn't really know me. Um, and I didn't feel like I was owed anything. And yeah. I was actually probably a little bit relieved because it was like, well, I don't have to do like a rehearsal once a week for improv. Yeah. It's, um, it is always a relief when you don't get a non-paying job. Yeah. Even if you wanted it, you're kind of like, oh, okay, well. Yeah. I had a show, uh, a stand up show earlier this week that was, um, uh, canceled at the last minute mm-hmm. and I was kind of relieved Yeah, because yeah, I didn't have to do. leave my house that night. <laughs> How'd you land on Superstore? Superstore. Uh, Superstore. I auditioned for a role on Superstore. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a one episode role and did not book it. Uh, and then I, I need to see if I can find out how this happened, but I don't remember auditioning for the second role that I got. I feel like they might've just asked me to do it. That might not be true. I probably just did audition for it, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I just auditioned in a regular way. And then I went on, uh, in season two, I can't, I had one episode and then like near the end of the season, they asked me to come back and then they've asked me a couple more times. So like now I'm part of like a little bit of a soap opera that's on the show. How good is that set? Oh, it's great. I love, I love stepping onto that set. It's too much fun. Uh, it's a great set. Great people, very friendly crew, and oh, they, yeah. they're always yeah. very they're warm to but me. But don't eat the crew snacks before the crew has had a chance to get their snacks. Well, snack is a big deal. Yes. Snack is a meal that comes like three-ish hours after the start of the day, and it's... Mm-hmm. So my first day that I was, I was ever on Superstore, it was... Um, uh, off like off of the studio lot. It was at the, the Smokehouse restaurant over mm-hmm. in Burbank or, or whatever that is. When you go over the hill, Barham... Yes, 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 yes. Um, and, you know, you're always a little bit, your first day in any new environment, you're a little bit trepidatious about um, 
Uh, well, you want to behave yourself. You don't want yeah. to make a bad first day impression. Yeah. Just actually, I have a good story about that too. Oh, excellent. Uh, uh, so, and I remember they were like, oh, you can get snack. And it was like a full brisket barbecue. Yeah, no, they don't fuck around with snacks on, on Superstore. Yeah. It's legit snacks. But it was not the lunch. Like yeah, it was yeah, full yeah. barbecue and I, was, I fixed an entire plate. That's what we say in Texas. You fix a plate um, of barbecue. And then like a couple hours later, there's another lunch. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, the snack is totally legit. And yeah. I understand why there's protocol on, on the snacks on Superstore. Yeah. This is real inside baseball. Oh, no, no. <laughs> recently, the, the other thing I want to say was recently, uh, like last year, I was on set mm-hmm. and I was um, eating uh, one of their healthy meals, which had like uh, quinoa and steak on it. The snacks have a gluten-free option even. Yeah, they always do. It's so good. Or anyway, vegan or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was having steak, but didn't have a knife. Mm-hmm. But it was the kind of steak where you can kind of bite it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's what I was doing. I started just biting off pieces, you know, sitting in my little chair in the cast area. And then um, a a way more famous person came to sit next to me. And I just didn't... I wasn't like trying to engage them in conversation. I just was just trying to sort of mind my own business, but I didn't. So I'm eating my steak. And then, um, there was the bump. We always wait for one bump. It's oh, going to happen sooner or later. Thank you for, for the gesturing. Thank you. I then bit into the steak, mm-hmm. did not successfully bite off a piece. Yes. I was like, Oh, and then I'm sort of gnawing at it Yep. yep next yep. to a very famous person. Yep, yep. 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 So instead I was like, you know what? I'm just going to eat this whole piece. It, you know, it's cut into slices. Yep. Yep. So I'm like, I'm going to eat this whole piece of steak. So I put the whole piece in my mouth. I'm just going to chew it, you know, not Mm -hmm. make any fuss and eat it. The chewing did not work and it all went into my throat and I legitimately couldn't breathe for 15 seconds. Like it was pushing my esophagus and trachea, like in a way that I, I couldn't get air in at all. And I just basically had to go like and like inhale it because I, my alternative was to like start choking and just like (laughs) make a celebrity give me the Heimlich or something. And so my, my, um, just like feeling a little bit like, I don't know, like I don't want to make any fuss or anything like that (laughs) was Mm -hmm. like, I almost choked to death with a piece of steak, just completely blocking my airway. What was the takeaway lesson from that moment? Get was this a learning moment for get, you? Get a knife next okay. time. They had knives. I just didn't get one. Uh, no, the um, the takeaway actually was, uh, it's not like a lesson. I just noticed mm-hmm. that um, if it was reversed, then, you know, if I felt higher status in that situation, one, I would have just gotten a knife. Two, I would have asked someone to get me a knife. Mm-hmm. Three, I would have just gnawed the steak however yeah, I wanted yeah, to. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to try to house this shit in one blow. Yeah. And if I was choking, I wouldn't like try to hide the fact so that it wouldn't inconvenience someone else or make them think I'm weird. Yes. Or, you know, um, so it was more just, I noticed like, uh, you know, I'm still, this is, this isn't my set, you know, Mm -hmm. it still doesn't feel that way. I just, I just noticed it. I don't think I have a lesson from that. Okay. Uh, except maybe just cut up the steak first. I have, I have a mini story. Yours was a real story. This is just going to be a half story. Mm. Uh, today is the day I was digging through my little handbag that I carry with me when I go on set. I finally ate the last Reese's peanut butter cup. I just grabbed a handful from Superstore before I left from the oh. craft services. Don't 
tell shit. I grab a Diet Coke uh, or two every single time I leave. It's their craft services is yeah, but astronomical. Also, it's something weird about being an actor. It's just like <laughs> I was on set recently on a different thing with uh, an actor. And uh, they were saying that they literally like fill up their bag. And this was a much more successful actor than me. Once you, they were saying they fill up their bag with craft services. Once you spend 10 years wondering if you're going to eat the next day, yeah. you just, they're really hard habits to shake. And who doesn't want a handful of Reese's peanut butter cups for the ride home? Or kind bars. Yes. Yes. You're fuck, man. I got to get back on Superstore. <laughs> you guys have the best food. Magic. Why, why, why would you do magic? Who knows? What, what, called you to that art form um and i will let me let me preface that by saying that it is my favorite art form on planet earth oh, i think really? it's just i think it's such a beautiful way to, to do you follow ideas. it relatively closely or do you just kind of enjoy it as a as a sort of civilian um uh fool us has made it very easy to yeah. kind of bridge the gap between civilian interest in magic and yeah. actively studying the you know the the kind of independent greats that might not be known to the average person. Yeah. You're Leonard Cohen's of magic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The magician's magicians. Say Leonard Cohen of magic is probably Rob Zabrecki. So I'm, uh, Oh, Rob, I didn't phrase that in a yes. good way. I would say the Leonard Cohen of magic is Rob Zabrecki. Who is, would you say he's the magician's magician? Like he's the one that magicians study. Uh, I don't know if they study, but, um, well maybe if they or do. just kind of look at him and be like, damn, he, he is good. I, I wouldn't say that they study him for his methods. Mm-hmm. Um, because, um, I wouldn't say he's like at the top of the technical game, but I yeah. would say people probably study him for his, um, implementation of like having a character. Like that's something I always talk about in stand up in, acting like having a brand or in magic, having a character. Uh, and he has like completely nailed that aspect of it that I watch. I actively rewatch and rewatch, uh, Sean Farquhar. Uh-huh. It's his character is a little too like goofball and uh-huh. sweethearted rube for me to be like engrossed with the whole package, but his yeah. technique is just astronomical. Well, that's the other thing is there are other people that you watch just to watch them do technical things yeah. because they're so amazing. And the, the, to answer your question, the reason I sort of got into magic was I always thought of myself as being like in a sort of third group that I think Penn and Teller Fuller's kind of appeals to, but I always thought was kind of an untapped potential audience for magic, which is I don't necessarily want to be a magician, mm-hmm. but I am also definitely not a person that just watches a magic trick and goes like, cool, that was fun. I don't need to know how it works. Um, I believe that there's a potential third audience of people that know how it works, but enjoy it anyway. Yeah. Like I don't like, uh, there are magicians where I know how every single one of their tricks works and I still watch their show over and over. So I don't know where that puts me. Although lately I would say it puts me more in the category of just being an actual magician. This is, this is kind of what I smelled on you when you were talking about uh, magic on uh, Spontaneous Nation, and yes. then when I was following your feed. Well, that was serendipitous is, uh, is, on Spontaneous Nation. That my, the last episode you I did. you had not loaded that at all. You had nothing to do with the magician's apartment. No, no, no. That's a, okay. They get the uh, so Spontaneous Nation is a 
improvised podcast that Paul F. Tompkins uh, hosted. It recently mm-hmm. ended. Um, and in that one, you always start with the location and the location is given to you by a previous episode's guest. So, okay. So that was just, or, or actually the, I'm sorry, the inter- the guest that was interviewed that day. Gives, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Total coincidence. From there, I started following your Instagram and realized like you're kind of in the same Venn diagram that I am of fascinated, practicing, not vying to be David Copperfield. No, not at all. But uh, just just interested in the the mechanics of how the whole art form works and the the complex layering of technique and intent and message that you want to communicate to the audience. It's really a beautiful and complicated art form. And yeah. that's why I kind of wanted to have you on in the first place. I know we've talked about everything but but that was that was kind of the like these this guy might be kind of simpatico with how i yeah. perceive magic uh well a friend of mine noted that magic is essentially is like one of the most uh like in, in encompasses the most skills discrete skills yeah um in that you have to be an actor you have to you, you know you can, it, it, it's like, there's so many different ways into it. So yeah, you yeah, can be yeah. an actor, you can be approach it from comedy, you can approach it from technical skill. Yes. Um, however, there's also like, you can approach it from memorization. You can approach it yep. from arts and crafts. Yep. You can approach it from like engineering. Um, there are so many different ways to achieve magical effects. That, that's, that's like, I, I will never be, I will never enter the magic through technical skill. Yeah. It, Cause it's, I'm too, I don't have enough time to, Oh yeah, no, it's, it's 10,000, 20,000 hours yeah. of doing a double lift of doing, you know, whatever the move is, yeah. you got to clock the hours on yeah. it to get it looking right in but front of I a do, mirror. But I love like gluing things and sewing things. I love yes. that. <laughs> That's one of the things that always, that's really invigorating about that fool me show is that, uh, is when they have, a magician on who doesn't come from the world of magic, I always think there's like a 90% chance that they're going to, they're going to win mm. just because Penn and Teller are coming at it from such a, a academic magic standpoint that if an engineer comes in yeah. who didn't spend 20 years learning how to do it the right way, they're going to find a solution to the problem that nobody, nobody in the magic world had thought of yet. Right. Yeah. I think most of the time they still, I mean, they, I would say pen pen comes from a more like a geek show juggling. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Teller is more the magic. I doubt that any method ever really. It, it might fool Teller, but mm-hmm. I bet when he finds out what it is, he's like, "Oh, I've I know what that is." Yeah, yeah. Uh, he yeah. might be temporarily like misdirected to not like clock what the actual moment well, was. That was, I mean, like <laughs> what you're talking about is the Matthew Beesh his first appearance with the fake box, like a box was oversized for his deck of cards to make them think that he had multiple decks of cards oh, in the yeah. box. That was totally just I actually that was cheating. Don't like any of those. I don't like, um, when they're gaming the system just to yeah. win. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's not no. interesting to me Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah because yeah, yeah. they're gaming it in a way that's just for Penn and Teller in a way that an audience member would not care. Yes. Yes. About yeah, that. yeah. 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 Um, so whenever they do stuff like that, I don't like if people put in, Sometimes they'll put like uh they'll put a fake move in there to be like uh to make them think that they forced a card or something like yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. And the method is something new. It's just like that's not really the game, guys. Yeah, no, You're no. Just stacking also, on. no one really cares if you win. Like, who cares? <laughs> no. It's not. Um, That's the thing is, they could invite any magician to open for their show yeah. at any point. The, the prize has absolutely no legitimate value. Yeah, the value that people get is they get an amazing clip. 
Yeah. And then they get all this exposure and then they can say they were on Fool Us, which gives every magician like a bit of legitimacy. Yes. Yes. They've been vetted by Penn and Teller to be on the show. I, I think very rarely are people like, I mean, the most amazing magicians that have been on that show, most of them have not fooled them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's, I, I think it's just playing to a weird uh, element of the game to try to like win it that way. Did you ever meet Ricky Jay? Did you have a chance no. to? Okay. No, I've only been like seriously into magic for like 18 months now. Okay. Okay. Um, so no, I have not met Ricky Jay. It's funny. Uh, I've had one like official magic teacher and there's one, there's a clip of Ricky Jay like crapping all over him, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of like made me defensive of my teacher. Like, Maybe you just think like, maybe Ricky Jay was kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to know about Ricky Jay crapping on people. Cause I like his work so much. Like I don't want to know the, the bad side. I don't want to know. I like Ricky Jay a lot. I think he's very cool. Um, you know, I, I'll, everybody that I ever idolize ever, there's always something in me that makes me think like, are they a jerk or like, is there, I don't know if this is a, I'm actually curious about some of the people that I like idolize mm-hmm. if they have the same, like, gene in them that makes them a little bit competitive with their heroes and a little bit wanting to like find flaws in them a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's not necessarily a healthy thing. It's just something I notice about myself. Yes. 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 That like I could list the 10, my 10 favorite artists of any kind and once you get familiar enough with them, you start to be like, yeah, well, this album wasn't that good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Suddenly, if if I can say that Tim Burton made one shitty film, then I can say that I could direct a film better than Tim Burton. Yeah, I mean, Th- Tim Burton, which, I can say, made more than one shitty film. If, for example, just for example. I hope you zoom in on me when I do this. That's what I learned at North Carolina School of the Arts. Wait, what was the one thing you learned? <laughs> was your graduation test? One more time. He made, a, he made more than one shitty film. All right, that's going to be your profile picture. What do you edit in? Final Cut or Premiere? Uh, Premiere. Yeah, you want me to do a digital punch in? Digital punch. Just slow. All right. That is the kind of craft that I learned at School of the Arts that uh, We are going to have so much bonus content for the Instagram (laughs) feed on this one. I'm I'm totally amped to get them started with the the breathing. Just the breathing? Yeah, you want the show? This concludes part one of the recording. Thank you for listening. We hope that you will enjoy part two.